Well, welcome everyone. I'm thankful to be with you today. Before we get into our message, I want to take just a moment and acknowledge the horror of what is happening in our nation right now. You know, the truth is, it doesn't take any courage to condemn racism. It's sinful, it's vile, it's evil. The truth is, the real problem isn't all the things we've seen recently, it's all the ones that we don't see and never hear about, which is a reality for so many people in our world. The brutality of systematic and overt racism toward black men and women in America is something that I personally am never going to have to experience firsthand, and neither will my children. But that doesn't give any of us permission to look away and pretend like it doesn't exist. It also shouldn't make us continually submerge ourselves in the horrific images to the point that we become numb to the evil ideologies that they represent. You see, to be a follower of Christ means more than just to feel bad about injustice. And while there is no doubt that systematic changes need to take place, I think we all find ourselves asking the question, what can I do or what should we do? Well, one thing that's clear is that we don't just get to throw up our hands and say, we've got to do better than this and then walk away. Now, when we refuse to make racism acceptable in any form, in our homes, our church, our hearts, we have the potential to be a small part of the solution. And while I don't want to pretend to have adequate answers, I do want to express that what we do as a church is more important now, more than ever. Change can't happen until there's change in people's hearts. I'm not suggesting that it's the only change that needs to take place, but it is a change that must take place. So today, I want to continue to be bold in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because the world needs this message. And the scripture I want to read to you is going to be our main scripture for today. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. This is what it says. It says, So we have been sent to speak for Christ. It is like God is calling to people through us. And what I want to call this message today, I'm titling it, if you're taking notes, is Even As We Speak. Now, if you just happen to be joining us for the first time, today we are in a series called Good Medicine. And what we're doing in the series is looking at the essential truths that make up our faith. I heard one pastor describe these things as the load-bearing walls. Now, if you think about a load-bearing wall when you're remodeling your house, what you realize is that there's a lot of things that you can change. Like you can pick out the kind of flooring that you want, or you can decide what you want the counters and the cabinets to look like. You can change the layout of the room. You can close some things off, or you can decide to open some things up. But one thing you can't do is remove the load-bearing walls. If you do that, the roof is going to come crashing down. You can't do that because it's essential to the integrity of the structure. Well, in much the same way, there's a lot of diversity that exists within the church, the capital C church. I think that diversity is something that glorifies God. I mean, we read about how in heaven every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping him. I imagine there's going to be all sorts of different styles of worship taking place. Like I've traveled the world. I've been in a lot of different environments and a lot of different church environments. And I think God loves it when he hears vibrant, loud worship 
And I think God also delights in those who attest to his greatness with liturgical readings. I think God loves hymns and hip hop, all the different styles. So when we get into the greater church, we recognize that, hey, there's some things that might be different than the way we would do it, but we all agree on these things. We agree on the essential things. That's what we're looking at during this series. If we say that we're a Christian, what is it that we mean by that? So we've been looking at it with this creed, the Apostles' Creed, and I won't go through all of it because the creed itself isn't sacred. It's just a summary. But the statements that I want us to look at today are from the section in the middle. And this is what it says. Hopefully you haven't memorized. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, God, our father is what we talked about last time. Our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, this middle section is the largest part of this creed. And what you probably noticed is that this middle portion is all about Jesus. Of the 24 statements contained in the Apostles' Creed, a full 14 of them are dedicated to Jesus. And why is that? It's because at the center of the creed and at the center of the Christian faith is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week, I started by asking the question, how can we understand God? Today, I want to ask the question, who is Jesus? Because the whole substance and strength of Christianity centers around knowing Jesus. I mean, have you ever noticed of all the names in the world, there is something different about the name of Jesus. I mean, just take for example, people have no problem taking his name in vain. I mean, you don't have to go very far at all. And it seems like probably even this past week, you've heard someone exclaim in frustration, Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? I mean, why not George Washington? I mean, he was a historical figure. Why not Socrates? He was a teacher and philosopher. Why not Confucius? Because that guy stressed moralism and kindness. What is it about the name of Jesus? I'm just saying there's a lot of names that people could use, but out of any name that could be spoken, who is Jesus? Well, let's start with his name. For example, the name Jesus, that's his first name. And by the way, his last name is not Christ. Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. It's actually the name God picked for his son when he was born into this world. In Matthew 1, verse 21, it tells us that an angel appeared to Mary and said, you will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's really kind of a play on words because the name Jesus means God is salvation. And the reason he, he said to Mary to name him this is because that's exactly what he was going to do. 
You know, one of my favorite things to ask new parents when I meet their children is, how did you pick this name? Because every parent knows there's importance in a name. Names have meaning. I mean, when we named this church, one of the reasons that we named it Velocity is because we wanted to see God move in our lifetime. We wanted to be part of a move of God. And Velocity is about a movement. You see, this church isn't just so we can check the religious box that we did something on the weekend. No, we are here for a mission to see God move in people's hearts and perform the work of reconciliation, where he is reconciling all people back to himself through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. We're here to see God's spirit poured out in the hearts and lives of people in our city and to see what starts here moving beyond just the walls of a building and beyond the borders of a locality, but to spread across the nation and reach the world. That's what a move of God looks like. That's why our church was named this way, because there is power in a name. And there's power in the name of Jesus. But in Jesus' day, the name Jesus was actually a really common name. It would have been like John or Sarah. Christ, however, was his title. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament when the world first got broken. Now, we know the world is broken. We can pull out our phones and see the world is broken from racism to abuse to addiction to corruption. There are a lot of things that should not be. It's not to say that there's not anything good in the world. I mean, part of our job as Christians is to redeem creation. Part of our job is to bring about the restoration to places that God has called us to. And to be clear, the Bible doesn't tell us that this world is a beautiful place and that you should just make the best of it. No, the Bible actually says that the world was a wonderful place, but that it's been broken, and He promises to fix it. And the promise, as it's revealed in Scripture, always comes through someone who would have the title Messiah. Messiah, you've probably heard before, Messiah is simply the Hebrew word for Christ. Messiah means anointed one. Christ is the Greek word. Christ means anointed one. Same meaning, two different languages. So when you're saying Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, what you're declaring is that Jesus is the promised Savior. He's the one who will make wrong things right. That is his identity. And if you need a heading for this first part, if you're taking notes, you might just want to write down that word identity. Because regardless of what any one may person might think or believe about Jesus, Jesus Christ has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. I mean, his birth marks the delineation of time in our calendars. And it's his name that millions of people used to curse and millions of people used to pray throughout the world. So whether or not you follow him, you have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has changed the world. I mean, even if you don't like him, you have to appreciate the impact of his single solitary life that it's made on the world. He hasn't just changed the world for Christians. He has straight up changed the world. And if you're watching this today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, can I just tell you that we started this church for you. We started this church so that you could come and ask questions and feel welcome. We've said for a long time that this is a place that you can belong before you believe. Now you need to know, 
we really do believe. And what we're doing in this series is detailing what exactly it is that we believe. Because our hope is that once you experience the same grace, the same forgiveness, the same peace that we've experienced, you'll want to share this with others too. And in a nutshell, that's what we do as Christians. We share good news. That's what the gospel is. It literally means good news. And good news is meant to be shared. I mean, when you eat at an amazing restaurant, what's the first thing you do? You tell somebody about it. When you discover a good show on Netflix, what do you do? You tell your friends about it. When you have a baby or you pass a test or when you get a raise at work, you share that good news with others. You see, it's not arrogance that leads to evangelism. It's not the accumulation of information that makes us share Jesus. No, it's the reality that God loves you and has saved you, and that's what we want to share with others. So who is Jesus? Well, Christ is his identity, but I also want us to look at his ancestry. That's the second part, his ancestry. What is his ancestry? Well, here you go. Son of God and Son of Man. This creed that we've been confessing together, this is what it says. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And I just want to acknowledge that this is a tension because what this tells us is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I get it. That's hard to wrap our heads around. It's hard to teach. This is a theological doctrine called the incarnation. And it's literally the infleshing of God. And here's the key point that I'd want you to remember if you're writing things down, is that when Jesus stepped into our humanity, he didn't leave behind his divinity. No, it was God who made the world now entering into our story. It's unfathomable, yet it's what God says took place, that when Jesus came to earth, it was not the subtraction of divinity, it was the inclusion of humanity. He was still fully God, even though he laid aside voluntarily the use of his divine privileges. So while he walked into this world, he was fully God, but in his miracles, it was him relying on the power of the Father working through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And you see this over and over and over in Jesus' life. He would honor the Father in yielded submission, working through the power of the Holy Spirit himself still being fully divine, yet at the same time, being a human just like us. Now, some people might say, I mean, do we really have to believe that? Do we have to believe the virgin birth? I mean, even if it's not true, we can still be inspired by Jesus. But can I tell you, friends, you can't do that. This is one of the load-bearing walls, because if you just start picking and choosing the things that you're going to believe, it's like removing the wrong wall. And the whole thing comes tumbling down. You see, how Jesus entered this world is essential to us being able to believe how we exited this world. Look, there are a lot of things that are just style issues. Like, do you have to wear a suit and tie or can you just wear ripped jeans and a t-shirt? All of those things are style issues. But when we're talking about the virgin birth of Jesus, who needed to be fully God, but also needed to be fully man. Otherwise, he couldn't take the hand of his father and the hand of sinful humanity, which is exactly what he did on the cross, and bring them back into connection and relationship. This is something 
that you can't choose to dismiss. And what's crazy is that there are still a lot of wrong beliefs out there about Jesus. Like, obviously, there are some people who don't believe in the virgin birth. There's some people who don't believe that he was really God. They think that he was just a man or that God really liked him or maybe he just had some good teachings. But then there are others who think that he wasn't fully human. And the reason he could do the things that he could do is because he didn't have the same limitations that we have. But scripture says that he was in all points tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. And the point is, we don't have a God who saved us from a distance. We have a God who got dirt under his fingernails and breathed our air. So who is Jesus? Well, we talked about his identity. We talked about his ancestry, but I want to use the remainder of our time to talk about history. That's the third one. Because the life of Jesus is verifiable history. In fact, there's a part of the creed that stuck out to me. Maybe it stuck out to you. It's when it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, I get the crucified, dead, and buried part. Like, I understand that. But I wasn't sure the importance of mentioning Pontius Pilate by name. Until I remembered that there are a lot of people who think that the resurrection of Jesus is a legend. I mean, they put it on the same shelf as Bigfoot. And I'm sorry for all you Squatch hunters out there. I hope that doesn't offend you. But the reason the creed tells us he suffered under Pontius Pilate is because it's a reminder that Jesus' life happened at a fixed point in history. Like, sometimes people think that our faith is based on misplaced information. And some people think that, hey, you know, even if it didn't happen, like, it's still this nice, inspiring idea. Or, you know, what harm is it if we don't profess to believe that it's true? We can still learn a lot from Jesus. But here is what I want you to understand. That when you actually look into what Scripture gives to us, and history offers to us. Make no mistake about it. The documents that form the New Testament of the Bible are not just inspiring religious writings. No, the good news of this good medicine isn't just that it's healing, but it's history. God's Word isn't just helpful, it's historical. They are reliable historical documents. And what we're presented with in Scripture has none of the stuff that you would ascribe to legend because the accounts we have in the New Testament are full of details and history. We know this because you don't open up the Gospels and find a long time ago in a land far, far away. No, we are not confronted with vague generalities. Take the Gospel of Luke, for example. The Gospel of Luke has been described as one of the most impressive documents of history in all of antiquity. It was written by a medical doctor. It was funded by a wealthy benefactor who wanted someone to do a thorough investigation of these reports of what Jesus had both taught and performed in his life. So what are some of the details? Well, if you want, you can look with me in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who was that? Well, 
He is a historically verifiable leader who, at the time when Jesus lived and ministered, was the emperor. goes on to say, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, well, who was that? He was the fifth prefect over the area of Judea who was under the Caesar at the time. He was like the governor. Well, who else was in charge? It says that there was Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. You might be wondering, did he have any family? Yeah, well, his brother Philip the Tetrarch, he was the Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis. And honestly, that kind of sounds more like a disease than a place. But it goes on to say, and Licinius was a Tetrarch of Abilene. When did this happen? Well, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And all of this is just to give context when we hear the next part that says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He was actually just trying to tell us about John the Baptist, but he went through all of that detail so that you would understand this isn't fable. This isn't the way fables come to us. This isn't some magical made-up location. We are given precise specifics. I mean, there are some maps in the back of your Bible for a reason. You can go to these places. And in addition to the names we just read, there's over 30 other historical figures mentioned in connection to the New Testament story of Jesus that can be verified from extra-biblical sources. Now, when I say extra-biblical, that doesn't mean that the Bible's not a legitimate source. The Bible is a legitimate source. In fact, one way we know the Bible can be trusted is because of the details of Jesus' crucifixion. They weren't just communicated specifically, but they were also communicated instantly. Instantly, you find that the narrative of the local church is that Jesus Christ is risen and that this is what springs forth unto salvation. You see an example of this in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read it to you. Paul says, he's writing, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, again, over 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Okay, so for context, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, and he wrote it in 53 AD. You got that date written down? You might want to write it down. Because Jesus died and rose again in 33 AD. So 20 years after this, he's writing to them discussing the facts of the resurrection. But you'll note that this isn't the first time he's communicated this. He says, this is the same thing I said when I was with you before. So earlier than 20 years, Paul had been preaching the resurrection. But that's not even the good part. Because what I really want to point out to you is in verse 3 where it says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the first thing that he said. 
So this is something that was taught to Paul. And we actually know the place and point in time that it was shared with him because the Bible tells us three years after his conversion, he met with Peter and James, who he mentioned, in Jerusalem, and this is what they told him, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living when he was writing this, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Now, I don't know if you notice, but that little thing I said, it, it's got a cadence to it. That's because it's a creed. In fact, maybe one of the earliest Christian creeds. What I'm trying to get you to see is it's estimated that from six months to one year after Jesus' resurrection, the church was already using this as a tool to communicate the facts of Jesus' resurrection. They didn't just communicate these details specifically. They communicated them instantly. Paul says, most of these people are still alive. In other words, you can go to these places, you can talk to them. He's saying, even as we speak, this information is verifiable. And that's the point I want to make, that even as we speak, what Paul has received has now been passed on to you. That now you've been given this mission to reconcile others to God. That's what our verse says, that we are here to speak for Christ, and Christ speaks to us through others. What he's saying is, be reconciled to God. That's what I want to ask of you today. And really, it's two invitations. That if you're a Christ follower, that you would know the truth of the one you represent. That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. That history verifies how he suffered under Pontius Pilate, how he was crucified, died, and was buried, and how on the third day he rose again from the dead. And if you're not yet a Christ follower today, that you would let the identity, the authority, and history of Jesus Christ allow him to do a work in your heart. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'd like to lead you in a prayer right where you're at. Scripture tells us that when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, that even as we speak, we're saved. If you've never done that, or maybe you're far from God, you know you need to recommit your life to Him. It'd be my honor and privilege to lead you in a prayer today. So I want to ask everybody who's watching, those of you who are watching together in groups and homes, maybe you're watching on your phone, you're on the other side of the screen, right where you're at, if you would bow your head, say this prayer with me. You can repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge my need for you. I believe in what you have done for me. How you died on the cross for my sin. And you got up from the grave. Come live in me today so I can live in you.
I receive your free gift of salvation right now. In Jesus' name, amen.